Welcome to the Plutarch Podcast. I'm Tom Cox from Grammaticus.co. In this episode, I want to look at Aristides' Roman parallel, his Roman counterpart, Cato the Elder. This may or may not be the Cato that you already know. If you know the Cato Institute, the think tank in D.C. associated with libertarians, that's the wrong Cato. It's really Cato the Younger that you're thinking of, who becomes a symbol of resistance to tyranny. This Cato the Elder is more important as the epitome of old Roman virtue. So just as Aristides was the Athenian mind, heart, and soul coming into its own, gaining the respect not just of its fellow Greeks, but even of the Persian Empire, of foreign lands, an awareness that the Athenians and freedom could mean something on the international stage. Cato the Elder governs a Rome that is breaking outside of the bounds of the Italian peninsula, that's starting to rule in the Western Mediterranean, that's starting to rule in the Eastern Mediterranean. And suddenly, people from as far flung as Israel-Palestine and North Africa and Greece and Macedonia are not just hearing of the Romans, they're meeting them. They're meeting their armies in battle. Right? This is really where the Roman Empire begins to expand. But as it expands, Cato the Elder is often seen as this watershed where the old Roman virtues, the virtues that made them great, are lost. So he's an example of what are some of those Roman Republican virtues that caused Rome to rise from city-state to empire. Patriotic discipline, the idea that every citizen was a soldier, that's a, a political idea that goes back to the polis right in athens every citizen was a soldier in sparta every citizen was a soldier in thebes every citizen was a soldier so too in rome that patriotic discipline and that soldierly life the ability to live on less to live simply to have an honest simplicity of life hard work self-denial your slaves were the the people that you worked alongside not the people that worked on these vast estates for you while you collected the riches and lived like a fat cat in Rome. That will be the Rome of later centuries. This century is the Rome of land holdings that make you rich because of the work you put into them. He seems to mark the end of the era of these old Roman mores, and he himself watches the Romans grow wealthier, lazier, and softer in his lifetime. Speaking of, his lifetime was a long one. He lived 85 years. He came of age in the war against Hannibal, so Hannibal is rampaging through the Italian peninsula, doesn't have enough troops to lay siege to Rome, but certainly has enough troops to keep the rest of the Roman cities in terror for almost two decades. He comes of age in those wars, those wars where Rome actually faces an opponent that they can't beat, at least at first, and an opponent who beats them on their own territory, in their own lands. He comes of age then, he continues through the Roman conquests himself traveling to places like Spain and Greece as the Romans begin to get a foothold there and expand their power in those lands. And then he finally ends the very end of his life. He's encouraging the Romans to seal the fate of Carthage once and for all to start the Third Punic War that ends so famously in 146 B.C., with not just the sacking of Carthage, but the raising it to the ground and the sowing of salt 
in its fields. So where should we start with Cato? Well, first, he's a Roman, and we've only done Greek lives up to this point, so we're going to need to focus a little bit more on the Roman political structures. Rome, Roman political life has three phases. It has the kings from 753 to 509 BC. There are seven kings, starting with Romulus and ending with a, an Etruscan king who is expelled because of an evil deed that he does. Then we have the Roman Republic, which really runs from 509 to, depending on who you're asking, most people will say it officially ends in 31 BC, you know, certainly in its death throes before then. So the main form of government is no longer a monarchy in the Republic. The main form of government is going to be elected officials who have limits to their power. There are limits of time because every elected official in Rome serves for exactly one year. And there are limits of collegiality. Almost every Roman official serves alongside at least one partner and can have as many as nine or ten fellows like a tribune. And those people, whether they are consuls or praetors or what have you, often have equal power to balance you out. They have the power to veto you. They have the power to stop you from bringing a law before the people. So what you have are about four different types of bodies. And the top one is the one that we still know to this day, which is anybody who's elected to a level of a magistrate ends up being in this body of this legislative body called the Senate, but it's not the only one. There are other comitia or comitium in the singular that will gather for different reasons to vote on different types of things. And those comitia gain power as the, the Roman Republic takes shape. But let's talk first about the political structure, because as a personal parallel, you're going to see, we're going to see Plutarch trace the political history of each of our characters and because in Aristides, we had talked about who were the archons, what do they rule, what is the strategos, right? Are, are generals elected and how? Uh, we need to see what each of the political structures in Rome looks like for understanding each of the people we're trying to get to know. So in general, most political service begins through military service. That's really true of the ancient world across the board, but it's particularly true of Athens and Rome. So you would usually serve in your 20s as a military tribune after you had completed your education, mostly at home at Cato's time, but eventually you would be completing your education under a slave in city of Rome somewhere and then by apprenticing. So you serve as a military tribune, but then you would come back to the city of Rome and you would usually run for the office of quaestor first. And the quaestor was in charge of the treasury. So there were quaestors in certain provinces, although not, not yet at Cato's time. And the main quaestors were in charge of public funds, where they were stored, how they were spent, that they were spent according to what the books said they were spent on. So quaestors were the treasurers, the accountants, they fought fraud. They often had the responsibility of paying the military so their job was very important. It also connected you and sort of established your reputation as trustworthy doing it. But then the next level up was not treasurer, but praetor, which acted really as judge and executive of the law. So you could decide when and how long cases would be heard for. Uh, it's jury selection frequently if there was going to be a jury. 
and you could serve in Rome or in a province. As the Roman Empire expands, we see the effect of Roman law expanding. Roman citizenship is still very narrowly defined right now in Cato's time, 2nd century BC, or 3rd and 2nd century BC. So really, Roman law and praetors are still mostly just acting in the city of Rome itself. But by Cicero's time, for example, there will be praetors in Sicily and praetors even in Spain. So with the Roman Empire's expansion, so too expands Roman law and access to Roman law courts. Great example is, of course, Acts of the Apostles, when Paul demands, as a Roman citizen, to be able to go to the Roman emperor on appeal, everybody falls all over themselves to make sure that it happens, right? That's how seriously the Romans took their law. There are several more chapters in Acts of the Apostles because of Paul's suggestion. And then the highest level, the highest ruling office in Rome was the consul. They essentially looked a lot like kings. They had certain, some religious duties. They had some executive duties. And then they also had legislative duties in working with the Senate. They could never legislate just by themselves. But they were elected every year and they were so important, like the eponymous archon in the life of Aristides, they gave their names to the year. So the period of the Roman Republic we often know it because we can be sure that that was the year of the consulship of Julius Caesar and Bibulus. But that's just one example. They also had the highest military authority. One of the good reasons that there are two of them is going to be very similar to the Spartan constitution. We haven't studied a Spartan yet, but when we get to the lawgivers, we'll study Lycurgus. And Lycurgus made two kings in Sparta instead of one. And that was both for a balance of power as well as a separation of responsibilities between domestic issues and foreign issues. And so for the Spartans, the foreign issues would have always been military warfare. You needed one king to rule to lead the army, and then you needed domestic issues. You needed one king to stay at home and keep, you know, keep things running, keep the the training camp that was Sparta running. The consuls really often worked the same way, although sometimes the Romans will send both consuls out, and at other times, really sadly, both consuls die. And so you have what's called a suffect consul to finish off the year for that. So that's really the cursus honorum. And we're going to see every single Roman life is going to trace the person's rise up the cursus honorum. So the reason I spent so much time talking about tribunes and quaestors and praetors and consuls is so that I can just remind you when we get to the later lives, oh, remember the quaestor is the treasurer. Remember the praetor is the judge. Remember the consul is the president and commander-in-chief of the army. So we can keep the, we'll have to keep those things in the back of our mind as we watch Rome expand its power at first and then transmorph, transmogrify into an empire. I usually start with an outline of the important people in Cato, the elder's life, and the important people in his centuries and his time period. So we, I've already mentioned Hannibal. The Second Punic War, the war against Hannibal, is one in which Rome absolutely feels like it's fighting for its life. Legion after legion gets destroyed, and they really think that Hannibal is an unconquerable foe, and it's really the Carthaginians who beat themselves by not supporting Hannibal enough. Cato grows up in that war, during that war, so he learns a lot from that. He also watches one of the heroes of that war, Fabius Maximus, who's a little bit older than him, and about whom Plutarch also wrote a life. He watches Fabius Maximus's political and military career and learns a great deal from it. So Fabius Maximus is another one of the old guard, another one of the old Republican virtues. 
that are going to change now as we look forward. And what do they change to? Who represents this new element? Well, that's Scipio Africanus. The winner of the Second Punic War, by taking the war to North Africa and beating Hannibal on his own turf, is Scipio Africanus. And he is a general who is contrasted sharply to Cato throughout this life. I know I've mentioned it before. You're going to hear me mention it all the time. The parallels between Cato and Aristides are important, but they're not the most important or the only parallels we should be looking for. There's parallels within the lives and pairings within the lives that are really fruitful. And this pairing between Cato and Scipio Africanus, as both men are good Roman leaders, but their styles are totally different. So unfortunately, Scipio Africanus's life, which Plutarch probably did, doesn't survive. So that's a real bummer because it would be great to see and compare Cato and Scipio in Plutarch's own words. We don't have that. And then the last two people that he is alive during the life of are Antiochus the Great, which is one of the successors of Alexander and one who fights Rome unsuccessfully after a lifetime of successful battles against other successors of Alexander. <clears throat> and actually, we come full circle with our people here. Hannibal ends up running away from the Carthaginians who don't pay him enough and don't respect him as a general to Antiochus the Great's court. And there's some really cool stories that will happen in other lives about that inveterate enemy of Rome going to and allying himself with another later enemy of Rome. Antiochus the Great styles himself the liberator of the Greeks or the protector of the Greeks against the Romans. Final one or the final person that we see a little bit of has also a Plutarch's life of his own. So we'll get there when we get there is Titus Flamininus or Titus Flaminius. I don't really care how you say it. At any rate, Titus Flamininus is one of the major conquerors of the Macedonians. He's the first uh, fights in the Battle of Sinocephali and is one of the first Romans who's able to prove that the Macedonian phalanx, the phalanx that had ruled the world for 100 years in terms of military technology and warfare, 150 years really, is obsolete. And the Roman legions have something that the Macedonian phalanx doesn't have. There are also some important places that we should talk about and should be aware of as we go through the life of Cato the Elder. The first is the fact that the Second Punic War is going to be happening mostly in southern Italy. Hannibal's taking cities like Tarentum, the coastal city on like the, not quite the heel, more like the mid-calf of the Italian leg. Uh, but then he's also sent to Sardinia, the island off the coast of Italy, as a governor. He's sent to the farther section of Spain, which we would think the part of Spain that's on the Bay of Biscay, really close Spain for the Romans is the east coast of Spain, and far Spain for the Romans is the southern coast of Spain. But for a long time, Spain is going to be a very slowly conquered province for the Romans series of interminable wars as they push inward and push inward and push inward and eventually they do have control of the entire Iberian Peninsula but there, there is not one single battle we can point to that does that for them and then he goes into Greece against Antiochus the Great in the Battle of Magnesia he's really a hero in a second battle of Thermopylae and so let's just dive right in and give a 10,000 foot view so he serves under under Fabius Maximus as 
the in, in the Second Punic War. And it's here that they say he falls in love with the simplicity of life that he sees in some of the men around him, particularly in Fabius Maximus, some of the farmers that he lived near. And he actually takes a city, Tarentum, the city of Tarentum with Fabius Maximus, and he disagrees with Scipio Africanus about how to spend the money. Now, Scipio Africanus isn't super famous yet. He's serving as a senator. He's serving as a consul and a general. He's talked to the Senate into trusting them, but he hasn't won the battles of Zama yet. He hasn't become a national hero that saved the Romans from the Carthaginian threat and sent Hannibal packing. So Cato is, disagrees with Scipio Africanus, thinking he spends his money like a wild man, like just pours it out like it's water. And he goes back to the Senate to complain about him. So that's that first separation of these two men. Cato will do things like not charge the state to send his horse back from Spain. Scipio Africanus is using state money to give extra gifts to his soldiers as rewards for what they're doing or to give gifts to the local uh, governing classes of the places he's conquering for Rome to just make things go more smoothly. And Cato thinks that that is absolutely forbidden, a complete waste of money and it's not even his money to waste. The money really belongs to the Roman people, and so it should only be used for the good of the Roman people. So he continues to work on Roman power abroad. He governs in Sardinia, and more of Cato's cheapness comes through. He walks. He refuses to use a carriage. He brings one person with him, one member of the town council with him all the time, and he carries his own cup for libations, but he's publicly absolutely just and all of sardinia trusts him so it's sort of a balance right he's a skinflint and he's parsimonious but at the same time he wants to follow the exact letter of the law and he takes roman law and the rule of law very seriously and he wants to be a representative of it no showing favorites no accepting bribes so then later he's sent to far spain which talked about that southern coast of spain and he wins a triumph because he's as he's actually he wins a triumph as he's leaving the province which is kind of funny plutarch explains a little bit more about how that makes scipio bitter with him but cato really has this longing this desire to be the best and plutarch is going to use this word a lot the love of honor or the love of glory philotimia is the greek word and he really uses it sometimes as a virtue and sometimes as a vice. And right here in the life of Cato, I feel like it it borders on the virtue-vice distinction. Because a love of honor that's taken too far, or a love of glory that's taken too far, will and can absolutely destroy the country for whom you're working. Cato thinks that he's using it correctly. Plutarch, Plutarch seems to leave it up to the reader a little bit more. But Cato has this famous quote as he's leaving farther Spain, having won a triumph, that he would rather compete in valor with the best than in wealth with the richest or with the most covetous in love of money. And so I think he really sees valor, arete, excellence, virtue, however you want to translate that, as the guiding principle in his life. He wants to be the best, which reminds us of Aristides, right? He wanted to be the best, not just seem the best. So then he's sent to Greece and we get some conflicting reports, 
right? He has anti-Greek sentiment. He thinks a lot of what is making the Romans soft is all these new Greek ideas, these Greek philosophies and these Greek plays and comedies and tragedies coming in, these Greek forms of entertainment. They're making people soft. He has this famous anti-Greek quote that Greeks speak words from just their lips while the Romans speak from their hearts. So the perfidious Greek is a common Roman trope that will take really several generations for the Romans to get over. And it's not really until they fully conquered Greece that they do. But at the same time, we're told by Plutarch that he spoke to the people of Corinth in Greek and not in Latin. That's odd. And I think a lot of historians will take issue with that. But I'll just I'll just report. Then in the second battle of Thermopylae, Remember, the first battle of Thermopylae is where the 300 Spartans famously slowed them down by making them take seven days longer to fight their way into the Greek mainland. This gave Athens time to evacuate their city. It gave Corinth time to prepare a defense of some kind. The navies were able to get together. So Antiochus the Great holds himself up in Thermopylae as well. But Cato, Cato has studied history. He studied military tactics and how it worked last time in you know 480 for Thermopylae 200 and some years before. So he knows that there's a path through the mountains. He just has to find it. So he hires a local guard and he really goes solo through this mountain range trying to find exactly where Antiochus's men are placed. And once he does, then he brings the weight of his full force against them. So it's really Cato does this crazy reconnaissance mission be something cool out of a movie where he's able to he's positive that there is an answer to the question he pursues the answer to the question himself and then he brings the rest of the army in and even though he's still outnumbered by the force that Antiochus has brought he causes so much confusion that Antiochus barely makes it out of his tent alive so it's pretty cool we also get a little bit of Plutarch's political philosophy shining through here where his respect for Antiochus the Great bleeds into his lack of respect for all kings in general. So Plutarch says, Nor were there ever kings to be compared with Epaminondas, Pericles, Themistocles, Curius, or Hamilcar Barca. He doesn't just list Greeks. He doesn't just list a Roman. He also lists a Carthaginian. Hannibal's brother, Hamilcar, which is interesting. But the idea is they weren't kings. They were generals. They were leaders. They were statesmen. They were politicians of some kind, but they weren't kings. So Plutarch has a pretty low opinion of kings because he can name off the top of his head several men who were far better than the kings he has known who just don't compare. So how was Cato at home in Rome? He was, as we know, a prosecutor of justice. He brought criminals to trial. And he was even compared to Demosthenes because of his his speeches were so good. But he's famously elected to the censorship. And the censors in Rome were in charge of public morals. They kept the roles for who was in the Senate. And they could watch, correct, and punish, these are Plutarch's words, anyone whose life went to the extremes of voluptuousness or, quote, transgressed the usual manner of life for his country. So... The Roman way of life was something that was legally ensconced and legally protected and legally punished when there were infractions against it. And that was really the censor's job. 
So 10 years after he had served as a consul, Cato becomes a censor and he runs. It's really hilarious. Plutarch says that everybody else is running on the attitude of like, we'll go easy on you. No worries. We'll uh, we'll do whatever you want. Trust me, this won't be a hard censorship at all. And Cato says, you're all soft and I think you need to be whipped into shape. And that's what I'm going to do if you elect me censor. It's awesome because it's super unpopular, but he's elected censor anyway. So censors had a great deal of power, not just the power to kick you out of the Senate. They could confiscate your horse. And as we all know, horses were at least as expensive as cars, if not more expensive in the ancient world. They could decide the worth of your land and they decided or ranked you accordingly in your class. And that your rank according to your class affected what kind of military service you had to do and what kind of voting rights you had relative to your tribe. So the censors had a great deal of power. They tended to serve for between 12 and 16 months, and they tended to serve every five years. Although there's not, we don't have a great deal of consistency there in the Roman record. He ran against seven other men. Remember, there's only two slots for the censors because there's always a partner. He didn't campaign in nearly as much as he threatened. And then once he gets power, what does he do? He kicks out at least three senators that Plutarch tells us the story about. One killed a man for sport. Okay, that's messed up. You deserve to leave the Senate. Fine. Another man kissed his wife in public and in front of their daughter. That's why he was banished from the Senate. Seems a little extreme, right? Maybe the morals of the ancient Romans are not the morals of the modern Americans. He put a syntax on all luxury goods on purpose, inflating their prices, and then inflated their prices so that he could increase the tax revenue while at the same time disincentivizing their consumption. And we're talking luxury goods like purple dye from the Eastern Mediterranean, black fish from other countries, imported foods that made your fancy table, regular Italian food wasn't good enough anymore, regular Italian bread, regular Italian wine. You had to import your wine from Sicily and Greece. You had to import your fish from North Africa. He was like, nope, nope, we're going to tax all of that and the state is going to make more money because of you. And he also was trying, tried very hard or wheeled and dealed, we could say, negotiated the price for public works projects, bridges, public meeting halls or assembly buildings to the lowest he could possibly get and then funded a basilica that he named after himself. His full name, by the way, was Marcus Portius Cato. So he named it the Portian Basilica. So these things were obviously unpopular with the wealthy. Almost all of these are targeted at the wealthy but they were so popular with the common people who were so glad to see the wealthy cut down to size that they erected a statue of Cato. And on the statue, they don't thank him for his military victories. They thank him for saving the Roman Republic because of his, quote, good discipline and wise and temperate ordinances. Can anyone imagine a statue going up for someone who made the American people better by encouraging them to avoid evil and do good? <laughs> Ah, it's great to think about. But I think it's important that a lot of time is spent on Cato's personal life. Plutarch makes a turn at a certain point in the story after sort of covering his political life and tells us that he was a good husband, a good father, and a good economist. Economist in the literal Greek sense of oikonomos, like the, the ruler of his house. And so there's just some choice quotes that I want to share and a few little anecdotes that will encourage you to read it because it's pretty rare in Plutarch for us to turn and see the man not just as an example of great leadership on the in the outside world, not just a great military leader or political leader or legislator or speaker, but a great leader even in his own home, respected and loved and feared by his children 
and his children's children is something that Plutarch respects immensely about this man. Cato has some choice quotes like, a man who beats his wife or child lays violent hands on what is most sacred. That's good to know. A good husband he deemed worthy of higher praise than a good senator. A good husband he deemed worthy of higher praise than a good senator. And then they do all these old school Roman things like his wife nurses their son herself. Ugh, what? That's unheard of in Rome. That's what you hire a nurse for, right? He taught his son to read himself. He didn't hire a Greek slave and say, here, go ahead. And not only that, his education of his son wasn't just teaching him to read. He taught him to throw a spear, fight in armor, ride a horse, box, endure heat and cold, swim in rivers. Uh, and he wrote books about history of the history of Rome, especially for his son. He wrote them in larger letters, smaller, simpler sentences, so that he could start teaching his son Roman history as early as possible. Some of those things are just cool, but they're cool in part because the Romans were no longer doing these things. This was the way the old Romans had lived for a few centuries before that. This was normal for a man to raise his own son, for a woman to raise her own son. But this was becoming less and less normal as this influx of power and wealth and slaves come into the Italian peninsula and specifically the Roman city. So he was an economic ruler of his household. He always bought things with an eye for their returns. This is last cool quote is that he said a good table is the best place for making friends. Finally, he sets in motion the third and final Punic War when he sent over to Carthage as a, as a deputy to speak to one of their allied kings. And while he's there, he sees that Carthage is not struggling at all, but is coming back, is roaring back into economic activity and military power and and this is about 50 years after the Second Punic War had ended. And so he demands his famous speech or his famous line at the end of all of his speeches, regardless of what he's talking about in the Senate for several years, is Cartago delenda est. Carthage must be destroyed. And eventually it was, though not in his lifetime. The war starts in 149, the same year that Cato dies, and then ends in 146. It's basically a prolonged siege, and then they burn the city to the ground. Cato really embodies he went south to North Africa. He went east to Greece. He went west to Spain. He embodies the expanding Roman Empire in himself. In his biography, we can see that Rome is no longer just a peninsular power on this beautiful peninsula called Italy. They're expanding into the entire western and even the eastern Mediterranean eventually. I think the really cool, some really cool questions that come out of this are that the virtues that make us great are often the same virtues that are corrupted by our greatness. So are we struggling with this as Americans at all? Are there any virtues that we once had in the 19th century that we have now lost? I know we talk a lot about our vices from the 19th century, but what were our virtues? And is Cato's solution one that would help today? Or is that kind of change, the change towards decadence and softness and uh, ease of living being an, an emphasis convenience, perhaps? Two-day shipping, perhaps? Is that something that we we seek out and we can't we just can't recover those old virtues we can't be like i don't know ma and pa ingles for example who would live who lived 100 years before us and lived very very differently 150 years another good question that it brings up is what is the role of censorship right the, the romans give us the word censor and the censor's job was to control public morals now obviously our founding fathers did not think that there should be anything like a censor in our official government 
But there's other forms of censorship, right? We all know that social censorship is a big thing. We know what we can and can't say because of social approval or disapproval. There's self-censorship. You know that you want to try to say something as tactfully as possible without offending people on purpose, right? Unless you're on YouTube or Twitter. And at what level should these mores be illegal, right? Should they just be socially unacceptable or should they be actually codified into law? And then how much of an assumption is there on mores, right? How much do you need a homogeneity of culture anyway? I mean, all the Romans would have seen at the end of the day, there was a Roman way of looking at things. And as their culture became more heterogeneous, as they saw a Carthaginian way of looking at things and a Greek way of looking at things and a Spanish tribal way of looking at things, what were the ideas that they were wrestling with to try to incorporate those? And are all things going to be incorporated? How do you incorporate Greek philosophy without becoming hedonistic? How, yeah, how can you beat the Carthaginians and not become just like them, a mercantile empire uh, of great power? Um, was Cato right in worrying about the Hellenistic Punic and Spanish influences as much as he worried about the gold and silver pouring in from these places? So anyway, I think all of those questions are are great ones and ones that keep me coming back to this life of Cato the Elder. He is a great example of this Roman period of the, the rise of Rome, as we often call it, or the rise of Rome from a city-state to an empire. So that about wraps it for this episode. And you can find more information about the podcast at grammaticus.co slash podcast. Please leave a review of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help other people find it. And as always, thanks for listening. And I hope I've inspired you to open Plutarch and let his lives affect yours. 